Hello, hello. Welcome back to All Plotted Out, the podcast where we'll be going through the later seasons of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, episode by episode, because I think they deserve it. This week, we'll be dealing with episodes 11 and 12 of season 6. So that's Flutterbrutter, or Flutterbrutter, as some might more easily pronounce it, and Spice Up Your Life. I have no apologies to make that I'm aware of. I'm sure they'll catch up with me. And also no con-based antics this week. A lot of folk I know are actually at the UK Ponycon this weekend, but uh, I am not joining them. I'm here, providing you with hot, tasty slices of content. That's my excuse anyway. So yeah, let's rock straight into it with... uh, Flutter Brother. Do you know what? I'm just going to say it like that. It works so much better. Because uh, Flutter Brother just sounds stupid. I could just call it Shy Guy. But A, that probably creates associations with Mario. And B, it kind of has an inappropriate romantic overtone. Very inappropriate in this circumstance. So, uh, Flutter Brother, it is. It has a sort of middling 6.9 rating on IMDb, and the synopsis reads as follows. Fluttershy must help her obnoxious and insecure slacker brother Zephyr Breeze shape up. It's got a story by long-time show backbone Megan McCarthy making a reappearance, and uh, the teleplay is... (gasps) What's in the bag? Wow, this is... It's the entire Hammersmith Odeon. Hammersmith Odeon, are you ready for the Death Jam Tour? Let me hear you make some noise for Dave Rapp! Consider yourselves... Warned! Yes, he's back with the full-on Dave Rapp attack. So yeah, off the bat, I might say that uh, this really pleasantly surprised me on a rewatch. I remembered the episode fairly well, but I don't remember liking it quite as much as I did this time. It does have flaws, um, most certainly towards the end of the episode, in my opinion, as I shall hopefully explore. While Fluttershy's brother, Zephyr Breeze, is new to the show, um, so too are Fluttershy's parents, uh, listed here just as Mr. and Mrs. Shy. Now, it's easy to scoff at the fact that we've, we've never heard of Fluttershy's brother before. He's never been mentioned. I don't think it's a big issue that they've not really popped up before. Certainly not Zephyr. It's not quite the same as the Shining Armour situation where all of a sudden he's key to the plot and the dynamic. Zephyr Breeze is in one more episode in the whole run of the show. And I don't know that Mr. and Mrs. Shy make another appearance at all. But anyway, the intro does a nice job of introducing Fluttershy's family, Zephyr included, with her parents. You can see where she got it from. But in another way, you can also see what she's working against. As compared to Fluttershy, especially by this point in the show's run, Mr. and Mrs. Shy are timid to the point of ineffectuality. Interestingly, Rainbow Dash is dropped into this scenario as a sort of sounding board. It does seem to be a bit arbitrary why they've picked Dash for this. 
but it, I think it nicely offsets what could be a very overly diplomatic, overly uh, fluffy family situation. And I think Dash also provides a, an audience surrogate, basically saying what's on everyone's mind, which he's good at in general. So yes, it's a quiet, polite family dinner with Rainbow Dash. And into this is introduced the difficult sibling, Zephyr Breeze. He's invasive, self-obsessed, borderline obnoxious, though he is very identifiably a young person. I knew a lot of students like this when I was coming up. In fact, I probably had some of these characteristics myself back in my student days. While the Shies are given very good performances, both of them, by established voice actors, by their nature, they sort of drift into the background, as befits the story. So, as befitting his name, Zephyr comes in like a storm, whipping up the family home, getting in everyone's way, and leaving an unsettling trail of destruction that manifests literally from the invasive way he frames Rainbow Dash on the chair, to him absent-mindedly dumping his bag on the table, crushing the dessert without recognition or apology. There's a family portrait, quote-unquote, in the living room, and Zephyr dominates the frame. Notably, Fluttershy isn't even in the image. Basically, Zephyr has been off at college, has evidently only been there for a couple of weeks before getting narked at the criticism and withdrawing back to his folks' place. As implied, as soon as he arrives, he starts trying to reshape the place in his own image. It is evident that his parents haven't really been sure how to deal with his self-absorption, but once more, it should be noted that Zephyr is a young character, and the offence and damage he causes isn't through any calculated meanness, although it can be just as damaging, it's more through insensitivity, a lack of self-reflexiveness and an inability to yet see how others see him and his effect on the world around him, which is a common blight of young men in particular, I find. So what we actually have here, as opposed to how it played out in my memory, having seen this episode only once before, when it was first aired, this is more about dealing with a family issue rather than dealing with an encroaching problem. It is about how best to deal with the teething issues of sort of flying the coop, if you'll forgive the pun. And while, though they're being walked all over, is certainly not helping Zephyr grow up, the Shies certainly do understand the problem and what the situation actually is. When Fluttershy pulls Mr and Mrs Shy aside, her mother explains his behaviour away as, he's just trying to find his place, dear. Which is true, but the problem is where the line is drawn in terms of having patience with this when it begins to affect other people so negatively. They know, or are at least hopeful, that he will eventually settle down. However, Fluttershy knows that they could be doing more to help the situation. Fluttershy is brilliant in this What's really nice is that in this dynamic, she can be a more assertive voice without it seeming out of character. When Fluttershy deals with new situations in other episodes, 
it's perhaps understandable that someone so timid as her, uh, so self-questioning, wouldn't be that assertive. But this is a very familiar dynamic to her. So she is actually the middle ground here, which makes perfect sense in this ongoing family issue. As mentioned before, you can see where Fluttershy got it from. It makes sense, although it might be a little obvious, that her folks are basically Fluttershy, but more so. Very kind, very accommodating. They've lived quiet lives with the simple pleasures around them and found joy in small things. Her mother with flowers, her father collecting little bits of interesting cloud he's found at his decades at the cloud factory. And it might seem a little bit obtrusive and weird that Zephyr Breeze has come from this, this big, dominating invasion force of a young person. But his ego, his inability to see the effect he has on others, is the result of all of this kindness, of all of this patience, without it being moderated with discipline or sort of enforced tough love. Their reactions make perfect sense. I think how well Fluttershy is written in this episode, on the whole, is illustrated when her parents say to her, we may not be as bold as you, Fluttershy, but we can deal with this. And this isn't a joke. It's not taken by the audience as a joke. It makes sense in this circumstance. I mean, in, in another episode, it might have seemed fundamentally humorous that someone would describe Fluttershy as bold. But in this circumstance... She is. She is assertive, and it makes sense, and it is very much in character. She has spent enough time outside the problem to see it for what it is. She has spent enough time inside it to have lost her patience with the situation. Quite rightly so, one might say. And her approach is never aggressive at all. Well, at least not to begin with, but we will, uh, we will come to that. Zephyr is a really well-played character by Ryan Bale. Um, a very interesting character that, playing to one of the show's strengths, doesn't so much subvert a stereotype as just ignore it. Just allow several different elements to coexist in one character. It would unfortunately be very easy for Zephyr, who's melodramatic and obsessed with style and appearance, and whose passion seems to be main styling, to be played as some sort of gay stereotype, as I think many series would have done, but there is certainly never any impression of this. And there is no discrepancy between Zephyr's interests and his sleazy personality. He's an artist with an ego, and that transcends most things. The first two-thirds of this episode are great, with Fluttershy acting as the awkward and slightly unwilling mediator and Rainbow Dash providing much of the blunt force comedy. I should note that Ashley Ball is really on form here. She delivers some absolutely killer line readings. Rainbow Dash is also used to sort of enforce the confident side of Fluttershy as well. So she's emblematic of the struggle going on in Fluttershy here between the the polite and patient to a fault and the, uh, the aggressively go-getting to a fault. Though I think the story does fall more on Rainbow Dash's side than on that of Fluttershy's parents. What is absolutely lovely about the way Fluttershy tries to build appropriate boundaries regarding Zephyr 
is that when she finally has to say, unless you pull your weight, you are going to have to leave, she's very upset that she's had to do this. And she does question herself a lot because tough love, which is what it is, is difficult for both parties. It's always difficult for the person who needs helping to hear, but especially when it's come from a situation like this and and almost has to erupt out of nowhere, it can be really painful and feel aggressive and uncomfortable for the person who has to deliver the ultimatum. Zephyr, very believably, I think, has a subtle line in emotional manipulation. When he first gets uh, turfed out, as it were, from Fluttershy's parents' house, he says, oh, well... I, I actually did just, just want to keep you company, but, but you know. And later, when Fluttershy has to do it herself, Zephyr rounds her and saying, oh, no, it's fine. I mean, you, you, you always were the bossy one. Him subtly turning the dagger on her. But for the most part, Zephyr never comes off as deliberately mean or deliberately manipulative. It's mean and manipulative in the same way that a child will use the situation they're in to get what they want, or rather return things to the status quo they're accustomed to. I think only one element tips Zephyr's character into the obnoxious, perhaps a little too far, and that is the fawning over Rainbow Dash. Because not only in a show where there is next to no romantic content at least explicit romantic content, is it always a little odd when it's introduced amongst the main characters. The manner in which he pursues Rainbow Dash is so sleazy and inappropriate that it does almost cross a line into making him outright dislikable. There's a nice escalation mid-episode where Zephyr tries his hoof, or rather is forced to try his hoof, at a number of different jobs. And it illustrates how he can use others around him to his own ends to do things for him. When Twilight employs him to clean the windows, Spike is super puffed up and proud that he's been left in charge. And he seems very sure of himself that he'll, he'll keep Zephyr in line. But as always with Spike, he's a softer touch than he appears. And perhaps predictably, Zephyr ends up using Spike to do the job. Spike can be the realistic one, the grounding one, but he can also be very naive, and his kindness can be used against him. It's telling that his last chance is working for Rainbow Dash, who lays down the law in firmly militaristic fashion. Basically, do your job, or I'll hurt you. Resulting in a classic comedy cutaway, when uh, a frazzled Zephyr Breeze walks into Fluttershy's cottage and pushes his entitled childish attitude to its most literal extreme when he says she expects me to do stuff exactly when she tells me to do it it's insane it is perhaps at this point that the episode unravels a little i feel it gets rather more obsessed with the ends and drawing a conclusion The episode turns from understanding the reasons behind Zephyr's behaviour, his insecurity, his fear of failure, to being rather more obsessed with laying down the law. The issue with this being that in real life, it is unlikely that a character as defensive and egotistical as Zephyr would accept commands without explanation so quickly. 
And I mean, admittedly, there are time constraints and, you know, it, it would be unwise perhaps to draw a story like this out into two parts. It perhaps doesn't have that gravity to it. I do feel that it might have been nice to try and impress on Zephyr the importance behind having a job. Not just saying, get a job or get out. Which admittedly is probably a fairly standard parental ultimatum after a certain point. But all too often, work is treated as a profound negative. As a sort of mournful daily trudge you have to deal with in order to get on with life. But there are real positives that can come from a, a solid job with a boss that treats you with a modicum of respect. It can provide structure. It can provide stability, reliability when perhaps you're going through difficult times. It can also build confidence and skills and you can build boundaries yourself as you go on in terms of what am I prepared to deal with in a working environment and what am I not? One of the problems with the resolution of this episode is that it is not built around understanding this compromise. Now, yeah, it probably would have to go into too much detail and be too drawn out in order for that to be the case. Uh, so I understand why it is tied up the way it is. But it does kind of clash with the rather more sensitive addressing of these issues earlier on. I mean, the problem I find with this episode really reaches its pivot point when Fluttershy agrees to let Zephyr come back and stay with her if, to paraphrase, he will do exactly what Fluttershy asks him to do. Now, Fluttershy is not a parent, although her behaviour is much like that. You can understand why she feels she has to be in this role. It isn't actually her role, though. This should have been enforced by Fluttershy's parents rather than Fluttershy herself. This move into authoritarianism is a little bit out of character for Fluttershy, and it doesn't illustrate her understanding of boundaries and her empathy, because I feel that an understanding of compromise in this situation is the most crucial thing to impress on Zephyr. In order for this, you have to do this. All of these things are a means to an end, and it needn't be the nightmare that you think it is. And while a lot of these things are superficially addressed, you know, oh, I'm afraid of failing, uh, but I do it anyway. It feels like the message of the show perhaps has been a little bit lost and it ends up turning into something about finishing something or seeing something through, which was a message going on in the early parts of the, of the episode. But I just feel it should have been dealt with differently. His quick turnaround at the end to saying, oh, I'll do whatever you say. Oh, I'll finish this. It feels a little too neat. I don't think a character like Zephyr, though he has been through a difficult experience, would fall into line that easily. When you're growing up especially and trying to establish who you are, negotiating with the world around you, criticisms are so painful no matter how grounded or accurate they might be. And it always takes a while for them to sink in, to suck it up. For a character like Zephyr, who puts up a great smokescreen of self-sufficiency, I think, yeah, he might actually have learnt what is necessary quite quickly, having been hoofed out on his bum. But I don't think he would be so quick to admit his own mistakes to others. And so when Zephyr finally completes his course and and comes back, the most 
odd scene is Rainbow Dash suddenly being really enthusiastic and fine with Zephyr Breeze uh, when he completes his course, because obviously that's changed all emotional context of their relationship for some reason, even though he is still being a nuisance in terms of his advances towards her. And I guess though it's supposed to be a sort of wah, wah, wah ending note when Zephyr says, oh, well, I'll need to crash here for a while, and it feels like it might dangerously veer back to the status quo, that at least feels a little more believable. These lessons are taken in slowly, as Zephyr says himself, baby steps. That's not just in terms of passing the test, as the slightly weak song of the episode puts it, but in terms of your attitudes towards doing what needs to be done. You can do something physically, you can intellectually justify something, but it might take a bit longer for you to understand why you have done it. Okay, stray observations, then we'll wrap this one up. I love the scene where Rainbow Dash and Fluttershy are flying together. And Fluttershy is trying to articulate her frustration by sort of half whispering that she's peeved. And then histrionically, there's a, a mare with her child that sort of <gasps> covers up her ears in shock. And even Rainbow Dash <laughs> looks shocked at this. It's like a projection of Fluttershy's own mind at this sort of extreme outburst by her standard. Yeah, there's a lot of great comedy bits in this. There's a nice little bit of symmetry, which just reinforces how, how tightly, I think, the character interactions were written for the most part. Zephyr misremembers Pinky as being Sprinkle Pie. And later on, when she's fumbling for a rather weak excuse to get out of a situation, Rainbow Dash interjects, I totally forgot that I said I would help Pinkie Pie sprinkle something. She's sort of playing off Zephyr's own lack of understanding about Pinkie Pie in order to just get out of a situation. I do very much like the sort of rug pull when Zephyr just assumes that both Rainbow Dash and Fluttershy have always got it together and they never fail. Which, when you're young and insecure, it always feels like other people have got more things sorted out than you have. Hence, sort of the defensiveness. So this makes perfect sense. The only thing I'm not sure about in that scene is that Zephyr's delivery of I can't do this, I can't do anything, sounds a little too sort of world-wearied. It sounds like an older man delivering it. I can't do this. I can't do anything. It's a little too self-reflexive for somebody in, <laughs> in Zephyr's naive position. And I think it might have benefited from a little bit more of a vulnerable, childlike line reading. Oh, I know this sounds so pompous of me to suggest, but he is still a child, in effect. I also love the sort of reinforcement of blind, naive parental love at the end. When Mr. and Mrs. Shy assume that Rainbow Dash has feelings for Zephyr because he has feelings for her, prompting one of Rainbow Dash's many shocked and disgusted expressions in this. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. Yeah, in summation, I think this is a really good episode for the most part. Uh, I love the character work. I think Fluttershy is drawn great. I think... I think the way she stands in between Rainbow Dash and her own parents is a, is a very effective dynamic. 
and I think Zephyr is a really well-observed and relatable character. I do feel it oversimplifies towards the end and takes some rather unbelievable emotional tangents, particularly on uh, Zephyr's and Rainbow Dash's part. They are too convenient uh, compared to the rest of the episode. It probably just has a sense of being slightly rushed to the conclusion. But on the whole, I do think this is a, a solid episode, and um, I'm glad I got the chance to reevaluate it. 7.5. I do feel that I perhaps might have been a little too hard on Dave Rapp in previous episodes. Maybe I should write to him, you know, just to, to directly set the record straight. Dear Dave, I wrote you, but you still ain't calling. I left my mobile, my pager, and my home phone at the bottom. Right, that's enough of that. It's not over yet. Ugh, my tea's gone cold. Right now, people of the world, I see ya, so hold tight for the... Oh, look what we got here. Vegetable Rogan Josh, Madras strength, a side serving of pilau rice, two onion bhaji, got some mango chutney, and a side of methi sarg. What were we talking about? Oh yes, spice up your life. First aired June the 11th, 2016, written by Michael Vogel, who's returning from A Heart's Warming Tale, which was good. It was certainly a Christmas carol. This one gets a solid 7.7 .7 from the IMDb Pop Pickers. And the synopsis reads, Pinkie Pie and Rarity discover a father and daughter struggling to keep their family restaurant open, which is causing tension in their relationship. In my last episode, I actually edited out a reference to the cutie map in as much that it doesn't seem to have really made any significant appearance so far this season. And the reason we're basically given here is that, uh, oh, it was broken, I guess. Which isn't hugely convincing, especially since all Twilight needs to do is some zappy thing with her horn, and it's all good to go. I do like it glitching out when it's reactivated suggesting that there might be a friendship problem involving Twilight and Twilight in Twilight's castle. But yeah, reactivating the map hardly poses much of a problem, and there's not much to speak of in the intro. I've got to say that, on reflection, I've really enjoyed the more grounded Ponyville character stuff that has predominated so far this season, but I think this is about the right time to start mixing things up again, and it is nice to have the map dictating some more unusual character team-ups. Rarity and Pinkie Pie is a pretty unusual one, but I think it works really well in this episode. In some ways, it has the same strengths and flaws as uh, the previous episode, in that from a different vantage point, they're both correct, but ultimately, it's clear that the writer does fall more on one side than the other. Now, I happen to agree with the side it falls on, but it does perhaps round itself off too neatly on one side at the end. Basically, 
Pinky and Rarity are called to Canterlot by the map to find a friendship problem, uh, or in a nice little exchange, which just shows how much smarter Pinkie Pie is than she lets on. Rarity says, oh, well, where should we start looking for the friendship problem? And Pinky just replies, you don't look for a friendship problem. It invariably finds you, which has been invariably the truth, regardless of the characters or the circumstance. So basically, uh, they start by getting something to eat. And putting it in its simplest terms, when it comes to picking out a restaurant, Rarity follows guidance and the perceptions of others. Pinky literally follows her nose. The two try eating at a quote-unquote variety of restaurants on the main cantalot drag, all of which have been certified with a three-horseshoe rating, which apparently is the equivalent of a, a Michelin star, but all of which seem to be more or less the same. This is nicely framed by having it flick between the different restaurants they try, and it have exactly the same framing, exactly the same decor, exactly the same waiter, but the hue of the restaurant is slightly different. It is slightly weird that the main problem here seems to be that Pinky finds the food disgusting at all these restaurants, because I would have thought that the main issue was that it all seemed kind of samey, or that it was more focused on presentation than it was actually actively disgusting, because I don't think any professional established restaurant critic would actually give a high certification to something that wasn't at least edible. And it's the first instance, I think, of the argument that's presented in this episode falling a bit more on Pinky's side. When Pinky has allowed the reins of finding a restaurant, she drags Rarity to a, a little place off the beaten track. Rarity looks on in concern before they step inside, saying, It looks like it hasn't even been rated. Thank goodness, says Pinky, as she gleefully hops in. Now, from any other character, that might seem to be throwing a bit of shade. But what's nice about picking Pinky for that part is that I don't think she is trying to make any sort of ideological statement. Certainly not at this stage. It's just, in her simple way, she has equated the three-hoof rating with bad food. And so now she is just simply avoiding that signifier. So here we have the Tasty Treat restaurant run by Saffron Masala and her father, Coriander. These are very clearly analogous to Indian restaurateurs. And, you know, I could complain about the uh, haggis whiskey esque naming of the characters, but to be honest, you know, it's just making me hungry instead. <laughs> Although the names aren't necessarily the most problematic aspect here to modern audiences. Might seem strange saying modern audiences, but the climate surrounding these things is, is actually very different than it was in just 2016. And it can't be ignored that between the two voice actors for Saffron and Coriander, there is not an ounce of South Asian blood. Coriander is played by show regularly Tokar, and Saffron is played by an actor of Chinese and Finnish descent, Diana Karina. Well, they should take nothing away from the performances themselves, with the possible exception of the of the accents. It would be expected on a more modern show that they find voice actors with a degree of Indian heritage to play these characters. 
Well, you could argue that it isn't a direct representation in the same way that Apu on The Simpsons was, or Diane in Bojack Horseman was, of uh, Korean-Americans, for instance. They are nonetheless, particularly from the names, supposed to represent a very specific real-world culture. Ugh. Um, well, they do, along with the names laid on a little bit thick with some of the the stereotypical Indian accoutrement, not least the very loud sitar-based incidental music. This does subside, and we're left with two very likeable characters who represent something just a little bit different from the norm, which is part of the point of the episode. But I can also perhaps give it a little bit more of a pass, based on my limited knowledge, that I don't think South Asian culture is as well-known in America and Canada as it is in the UK. As one might expect from a solid MLP episode, the problem and the pleasure of the episode comes from the different approaches of the characters and how these clash or ultimately interact. So, earlier on, both Rarity and Pinky agree that the food at the Tasty Treat is excellent, and that the restaurant and its owners deserve more than they're getting. They assume they're of the same mind in how they will achieve this, but the way the song is framed in split-screen illustrates that their attitudes are quite different. Rarity feels that in order for the restaurant to be a success, in order for people to come, it has to have the three-hoof rating, and therefore it has to conform. Now this in some ways is a realistic appraisal, but whether it's the right one... That's a different matter. Rarity's reaction, I think, is less based on her own prejudice than it is based on the the fear of how other people see her. Previous episodes have dealt with her trying to fit in, adjusting herself abnormally, and now she's almost projecting that onto someone else. So it makes perfect sense for her character, and is done with the best of intentions. Pinky feels that the difference should speak for itself, that the big selling point is the difference, and I would tend to agree. But the episode doesn't make it that easy. Nor should it. As Pinky soon finds when she's trying to conjure up a crowd from the streets, that people have certain expectations, certain preconceptions, and they're not really willing to go out of their comfort zone in general. So, structured in a somewhat similar way to Suited for Success in Season 1. Say that ten times fast! You have the equivalent of the first disastrous fashion show, where they bring in the noted critic Zesty Gourmand to taste the food, and it all goes horribly wrong, and she leaves disappointed. And then, against all odds, they manage to bring her back in for a re-evaluation at episode's end. It does go slightly differently here where the audience, at the end of Suited for Success, were won over. Here, Zesty Gourmand, this Tilda Swinton snooty critic, does not feel the restaurant should be given a second chance, because she has not approved it. She leaves without trying anything. So basically, the episode instills that critics are usually wrong, they're pretentious, follow your nose, which is uh, a bit broad. I do think the way in which food criticism is dealt with 
in this episode, in the sort of micro form of Zesty Gourmand, is a little unfair. To assume that Zesty is only going to be in it for presentation and one style of food, it doesn't really ring true. I mean, sure, there are loads of pretentious critics out there. Not that I'm exactly an episode on food criticism. I just tend to go on Google Maps <laughs> or TripAdvisor or something. So, yeah, probably playing more into the pinky side of things here in general. But, again, I, I feel like a, an actual arty critic would salute difference and challenge, albeit in a certain aesthetic. So, as long as it's openly challenging something in an existing frame of understanding, that's good. That's a good challenge. Uh, I think maybe something like the Tasty Treat, which isn't almost, it's almost not even participating in the same conversation and is refusing, in a way, to participate in the same conversation, might be sidelined because of this. It has no artistic pretensions, perhaps. But yeah, I, I don't think that this, even the snootiest of critics would condemn a restaurant for being different. That seems odd. And the ending is a bit weird. It would make more logical sense, or perhaps be more expected, that Zesty would change her mind at Rarity's invitation and try the food again. Because Rarity does this very sort of jabby, passive-aggressive thing. It's like, oh, well, Zesty, you, you wouldn't want to be seen to be missing out on something new and, and fashionable, would you? And Zesty just goes, humph, and walks out. The public wins, which, by and large, probably should be the way it is. But it would be nice to have seen the critic being able to adapt. Not a great character, Zesty Gourmand. But she serves the purpose, I guess. And her role in the episode is somewhat limited. A lot of the critical conversations could actually have happened without her even being present. But basically, the main moral of the story, if, if, if it can be seen in that way, is that the Tasty Treat succeeds because they do it for themselves. They do it out of passion. They remember why they wanted to share their food in the first place. Because it was their food done their way, and it brought them joy, and they wanted to share that. There's kind of a role reversal that happens, where Rarity now does the PR, and Pinky takes care of the decor, which in some ways makes sense. Pinky didn't understand the market, and therefore wasn't winning anyone over. But at the same time, one of Rarity's skills has been shown in the past to be bringing out the individual in her work. So therefore her being in charge of the decor actually makes more sense than putting Pinky in charge. But I suppose they've got to illustrate the, the change in approach in some more literal way. As mentioned, if there is a sort of main failing of the episode, it's that the writer obviously sides pretty wholeheartedly with Pinky in this debate. And so Pinky's quote-unquote failure to bring people in seems like a concession when I don't feel Michael Vogel is tremendously keen to illustrate the shortcomings in Pinky's side of the argument. Though that said, it's less that Rarity is wrong, it's more that she is trying to solve the wrong problem. If she wants the restaurant to get financial stability, be allowed to stay open, then she probably was going about it the right way, at least for a time, by 
asking them to refit themselves in more of a, an expected conventional mould. Conventional for cantalots, that is. In its simplest terms, Pinky was right, but perhaps not going about things in the right way. Well, Rarity was actually not helping matters, but would have solved a superficial aspect of the issue. While the fundamental message of the episode is solid, I do feel that Rarity tips a little bit too much into conservatism before she, she withdraws at the end. Um, her comment that it's very rustic at the beginning is perhaps a little too cantalot elite for Rarity, who never quite fit in with that crowd. It does border some slightly racist terrain that the episode isn't isn't really able to explicitly deal with. It deals with the aspects of difference and celebrating difference quite amply enough. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. I realise I've I've probably illustrated more potential issues with this episode than strengths. But on the whole, I actually feel it is the more solid and successful of the two episodes we're, we're looking at today. In part because there is a real logic to how it ties up at the end. The characters don't have to overwrite themselves or be contrived into taking a, an unusual viewpoint in order to make the, the message work. The new characters and the dynamic of the unusual Rarity and Pinkie Pie pairing is really welcome and fits this sort of story incredibly well. So it feels quite unusual in a lot of ways, this episode, although it follows some quite conventional beats. On the whole, I think it's a solid, enjoyable episode. 8. Postscript. It should be noted that the, the little section I did about the voice actors was actually dropped in uh, after I recorded it originally. I didn't know that the actors weren't of any sort of Indian heritage at the time. I was originally under the misconception that they were. Um, I don't know where I'd got that information from. <laughs> but it was incorrect. Does it change my score any? That's a difficult one. Would it make me feel better about the, the thick accents put on, particularly by Lee Tokar? If it was voiced by an actor of Indian heritage? Yes, probably. Should it? Uh, that's a different issue. So I'm going to leave the score as it stands. I still think it's a good episode. But there is a little more unease about this than perhaps there otherwise would be. Do I think these characters were represented this way in order to mock or simplify the culture in any way? No, I, I don't get that impression at all. Nothing about the characters... Differences are played for laughs, nor are they really stereotypes. Now, they are likeable characters with cool designs. But nonetheless, there is now that underlying irony of a positive representation of a culture or group not being represented by that culture or group. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? So it's about time to say goodbye for now. If you'd like to get in touch about anything Pony-related, about the show, about the episodes we've dealt with, please get in touch, as always, at allplottedout at outlook.com. That's all one word, all lowercase, allplottedout at outlook.com. Or contact me on the Facebook page, at allplottedout. But for the time being, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you'll join us again soon. Bye for now. Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for.